The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is so much sport, sport around me, around all of us, but especially around me. I'm in Chicago, hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this week. I went to a White Sox game last night. The Chicago Blackhawks are in the Stanley Cup final. Some horse won a really big race. Couldn't even talk about it. Didn't do my other show. Hang up and listen. So I got to talk to you guys about it. Don't worry, I'm not going to oversport you. I just want to establish the premise and then give you an interpretation. So the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavs, all the good players, but LeBron James were hurt. And they won. They won last night. They're up 2-1 to one in the series. It's extremely unlikely. Barry Pacheski in Deadspin describes it this way. It didn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense. This series is drunk. It's been a wonderful, thrilling accident. And that reminded me of two things. One sports, basketball, in fact, and one not. Here's the basketball thing. And this is about a coach who's Randy Whitman, coach of Washington, generally not seen as a good coach. But in Vice, Chris Thompson wrote a couple years ago, The rationalization being that Randy Whitman's miserable offense, which is designed to generate bad shots so long as the defense seeds them, might make the Washington Wizards a tricky team to game plan against over the course of a series. He's trying to explain, how can this terrible coach beat this good coach? It doesn't seem real. And I thought of something else, not basketball related. I thought of Greece's finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. And he is a game theorist. He loves John Nash, the recently deceased Nobel Prize winning mathematician who was the subject of a beautiful mind, but also put forward the idea that it can be rational to behave irrationally. And I think this might be what's going on. So the Greek finance minister, maybe he's bluffing. There's something called a Nash equilibrium. Maybe he's trying to act crazy or do the crazy thing because sometimes doing the smart thing isn't the smartest thing to do. And I think this partly explains why the Cavs are winning. Their game plan, which has been forced upon them by injuries to their best players, have forced a strategy that is irrational or would have been perceived as irrational by the Golden State Warriors, by the other team. If you have a very small chance of winning, I mean, here's the takeaway. If you have a really small chance of winning in the playoffs, just hobble your second and third best player. It also makes sense to have LeBron James on your team. But do something totally crazy. Keep LeBron James. Have LeBron James be LeBron James. And then just do crazy stuff. You got a good chance to surprise the other team. So, How does this apply to my life? Well, you probably expect me to interview someone, then I settle in and I deliver a spiel. Well, check this out. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to let my guest, Nate DeMeo, talk about his podcast, The Memory Palace. Then I'm going to let him deliver the spiel. Sound crazy enough to work? Which, in fact, brings us to our first topic, the legal definition of insanity. We ask, is it a definition an actual psychiatrist would recognize? So right now in Colorado, there is a trial. James Holmes is mounting an insanity defense saying that he should be judged, adjudicated, not guilty by reason of insanity for the killings in a movie theater in Aurora. Now, the insanity defense 
or legal insanity is an interesting concept. And one, as we learn more and more about what insanity means, seems to me becomes further and further away from our real understanding of insanity. It doesn't seem that criminal insanity changes, even though our actual understanding does. Well, joining me now is the professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Fordham University, Barry Rosenfeld. You might know him from editing the book, Research Methods in Forensic Psychology. Hello, Barry. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So criminal insanity, you want to define that or how do most courts define that? And if you could tell us what would be a difference between how a psychologist or psychiatrist would define insanity. Insanity is a legal term. It's not a clinical term. We don't have a definition in the handbook of psychology or psychiatry or whatever those textbooks might be called. We don't define insanity. We, we label mental illnesses mm-hmm. and mental disorders. But we don't define insanity. That's a legal term. And and basically that's used to describe someone who is either unable to appreciate the nature, character, and consequences of what they've done, or they're unable to distinguish right from wrong. So generally those are the two things that can render somebody legally insane. It's a it's a narrow definition. And so how does that let's take those concepts, not understanding right from wrong and not understanding what you've done, how do those concepts map onto defining or describing mental illness? Is there some crossover? Well, the key is that it has to be because of a mental illness. There certainly are mental illnesses that are, uh, are more likely to render someone unable to know what they've done, unable to understand the wrongfulness uh, of what they've done. Uh, paranoid schizophrenia is, is one that is probably the most obvious, or, or bipolar disorder mania. Those are the kinds of things that if you look at people who are found legally insane, and it's a small number, I mean, across the entire country, there's a very small handful every year that are found legally insane. And, and there's a number of reasons for that beyond just the narrowness of the definition. But it is certainly not the case that everyone who has those mental disorders is unable to understand right from wrong. I mean, there, there's certainly people who have paranoid schizophrenia, but make the decision to commit a crime or make the decision to violate the law. So it's really only intended to capture that handful of people who really don't realize that they're doing something wrong. They don't have a, a guilty mind, per se. Are there legitimate reasons for defining legal insanity the way we do? Or is it that we put these definitions in place before we really understood insanity that well? Or maybe just that there's a little bit, an element of cruelty. We don't really want to understand it and we don't want to let a lot of people off. Your last point, I mean, we certainly have some some biases about mental illness, I think, as a society. And it's very hard for people, even when they have what what many people might think of as a viable insanity defense, there are lots of reasons why it might be unsuccessful, why they might end up going to prison anyway. Um, but but I do think that the underpinnings of the defense are, are sound. I mean, I think the notion is that we don't want to punish people who are not morally culpable. If if you you know do something in self-defense, we don't punish you. If you do something accidental, we don't punish you. And and you know if you kind of go back to the origins of the insanity defense, it was really you know kind of rooted in in. Uh, in a person who believed that the, what they were doing was justifiable. You know, if you believed that you were in some kind of a Mission Impossible or James Bond scenario and you had a Russian spy that was trying to kill you, you would be justified taking that person's life. 
So if you believe that because of a serious mental illness, not because of reality, that's essentially who the defense is intended for. The law bases this on what's called mens rea, which is you know, roughly translated a guilty mind. It's not a matter of whether you did something that is wrong. It's a matter of whether you believed it to be wrong and thought it was the wrong thing to do. But from what I understand about some forms of mental illness, it ebbs and flows even within the course of a day. So should we judge them of in a case when it was ebbing, he should have done something to stop himself? I think that's probably an unrealistic expectation. I mean, it certainly does ebb and flow over the course of time. And it's what makes doing an evaluation of insanity so difficult, because by the time we encounter the person, a lot has transpired. We don't get the chance to see them, you know, the 15 minutes before their actions. Uh, and, And so by the time the person's now sat in prison for a little while, you know, they may be in a much different set of circumstances, and they may be able to talk about what they've done, but maybe, maybe don't even remember exactly what they were thinking at the time. We end up having to kind of piecemeal this, this uh, historical perspective on what was their thinking at the time based on all the clues we can put together and the information that we can get. And it's, you know, that's a challenging task. And it's, it's you know, one of the reasons why there's some skepticism and there's often some disagreements about whether somebody was or wasn't insane. All right. Is there anything as a guide to our listeners who might be uh, paying attention to this trial or other similar cases, anything that you want to tell them people should look for, keep in mind? One of our fears about the insanity defense is that, is that there's this growing sense that people with mental illness are a danger and that they're, you know, they're the reason why we're unsafe in society. And, you know, it's a real misnomer. It's one of the reasons why juries don't like to find people legally insane. We look at this and we think, you know, that, that, that all the risks in the world are due to people with mental illness. And, and it's really not the case. I mean, it's the rare case that gets this kind of profile and it gets this profile because it's so out of the blue. And the other part is that when someone's found insane, they don't go home. They don't go back on the street. They don't go back out to society until things have changed so dramatically that they no longer present a danger. And that's, again, one of the fears we have. You know, we have this fear that if if a jury finds someone insane, that they've somehow gotten away with murder. And they're not going anywhere. They're going to a hospital with just as many bars and razor wire and electric fences as any prison. And they're not getting out until they're better which is usually much longer than they would spend in prison. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what insanity means, and and that really sways a lot of juries and judges, unfortunately. Barry Rosenfeld, professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Fordham University. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Some small businesses still think an expensive postage meter is the only way to get postage without having to go to the post office. But they're wrong. They're Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, easily print postage for any letter or package using just your computer and printer. Unlike a postage meter, Stamps.com has no hidden fees like meter ink charges or reset fees, no extra hardware to buy, no long-term contracts. Stamps.com can save you at least 50% compared to a meter. Plus, do more with Stamps.com than you can do with a meter, like sending tracking information to recipients with one click. The choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. So use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer. Get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $50. $55 in free postage. So go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. 
Nate DeMeo is the proprietor, the impresario behind the Memory Palace. What is the Memory Palace? Well, you can skip ahead to the end of the show because I'm giving my spiel over to Nate today. But it's a podcast, a pretty short podcast that deals with an episode in history. Nate tells the story. There's really good music that's appropriate or at least evocative and sometimes both underneath. And it just works. It's so simple. It works. Hey, Nate. Hey, Mike. How are you? Well, what do you want to tell us about this one, Nate? One thing that people notice about the Memory Palace is there is never, their titles are a little bit cryptic. The uh, artwork on each episode does not necessarily point you in the exact direction that you're heading. And there's never an introduction. I cut my teeth in public radio like you, Mike, and I was always sort of frustrated by the introduction of things where you'd say, today in Afghanistan, there's a new, there's, there's going to be an election, and this year there's a twist. 17-year-olds will vote. And then they turn off to Don Gagne, and he says, there's a big thing going on in the election, 17-year-olds will vote. And why didn't they just say there's a big twist and leave it there? So I like the mystery of radio. I wish there was more mystery in radio. So I'm just going to leave this thing and let it roll. All right. So here's Nate DeMeo's report on the elections in Afghanistan. Enjoy. <laughs> Excellent. You could go to dreamland. You just caught the ferry at 23rd Street or the Battery, or slogged your way through the slow crawl of horse carts and motor cars, heading south on Shell Road in the golden light of a late June afternoon, down to the edge of the Atlantic, where a white city rose up above the brick and ash of Brooklyn. And you could walk through the fake marble gates as the sun went down, and the sea flashed amber and then gray, and Staten Island disappeared into the shadows, and the light grew dim enough for you to fool yourself that the marble wasn't fake at all. And then the bulbs blinked on, a million of them, lighting up the night in the largest amusement park in the world, which was a hell of a thing to see, just a few years after you'd seen your first electric light at all. And after you'd spent a 12-hour day in some basement room or some windowless factory floor, stitching sleeves or packing boxes, fitting fingers to gloves by gaslight, it'd be a hell of a thing even now to see dozens of white buildings made to look like French pavilions, Roman fora, Florentine towers, a glow at the edge of the ocean, where you could dance in history's largest ballroom, where you could drink tea in a Japanese garden, where you could sit in an auditorium in bleachers surrounding a vast pool of salt water and watch submarines conduct a fake battle beneath a scale model of the Golden Gate Bridge. You could buy your ticket to Dreamland and take a gondola ride through the canals of Venice, past St. Mark's Square and the Doge's Palace, steal a kiss beneath the bridge's size. You could ride your first escalator, this one to the top of a giant slide, which would send you down, caroming off obstacles like the Plinko board on The Price is Right. If you landed on the right spot, you won a prize. You could take a miniature train ride through a fake Switzerland, or another from New York to California, or walk the streets of Cairo, or Paris, and other places you were never, ever going to go otherwise. Or you could sit on a swing with your friends inside a tiny house, and then feel the swing move and feel yourself flip end over end, and only figure out later on when you're all laughing over beers, sitting out under the string lights and salt air, that you hadn't moved at all, that it was the tiny house that had flipped end over end around you. You could gawk at a freak show, 
and at premature babies in a hospital ward, which was a freak show too, but one that happened to be the only place in the world equipped to keep premature babies alive. You could sit and watch them through the glass, alongside their anxious parents. You could see a cast of 2,000 people set fire to a six-story hotel and watch firefighters put it out, scaling ladders to rescue actors from real danger and catch them in nets as they made panic leaps from fourth-story windows so they could make panic leaps tomorrow night and the next night and the next. You could tour the Lilliputian town where dozens of little people live full-time in a half-sized village, a 15th-century French village, because the indignity of living in a human zoo with modern amenities wasn't enough. You could fly over all of it in a hot air balloon. You could sink below it in a diving bell. You could watch a magician make a woman float right over your head. You could eat a hot dog. They just invented hot dogs. You could see a one-handed lion tamer and chariot races and whirling dervishes and snake dancers. And you could climb into a boat ride called the Gates of Hell until one night one of those million light bulbs blew and sent a spark that flitted onto paper mache and sent all of Dreamland up in flames. And 2,000 firefighters, all of them pretend, couldn't put Dreamland back together again. So when you were a reporter, a public radio reporter, were you put off by having to do the town council? You just wanted to talk and not have to actually play a clip of someone or at least or worst of all, someone living? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't entirely that. There was a little bit of that. I mean, the truth is I was for a very long time an editor. You know, I was a behind the scenes person and I spent a lot of time kind of like learning the craft of radio by helping people sound better. And so some of it was just like having this like little itch of like wanting to get in front of the mic myself and, you know, and then going on and doing some reporting on my own. You know, when I had first fell in love with radio, you know, I mean, some of it was being a kid and listening to DJs in my dad's car. Some of it was a little bit about hearing like a little Paul Harvey on AM radio, which I've come to realize is kind of a big influence on the memory palace in a lot of ways. A policeman is a composite of what all men are, I guess, a mingling of saint and sinner, dust and deity. What that really means is that they are exceptional. They are unusual. They are not commonplace. Buried under the froth is the fact. And the fact is that less than one half of one percent of policemen misfit that uniform. And that is a better average than you'd find among clergymen. What really you know, hooked me was the sort of non-news stuff. What really hooked me were things like This American Life, because that made sense to me in my non-radio life. Like I was a musician, I was, uh, I was an artist of sorts in different media, and there was something really sort of like artful and interesting. And so I go get into radio, do a lot of news. It's a great time to have done a lot of news because it, it, you know, my career kind of starts just before September 11th. And, and then, you know, it was a fascinating thing to be so engaged with the news in the way that I knew that I would have been just as a dude sitting at home, but to actually be paid for it and be paid to kind of like ask the questions was amazing. But there was always this sort of itch that needed to be scratched where I sort of like wanted to get back to on some level art and get back to kind of storytelling as like the drive of storytelling to kind of create, for lack of a better phrase, beautiful things. 
And, you know, that's sort of when, when I started to think about, like, what is it, you know, what kind of stories do you want to tell? And for me, you know, first of all, there was a little something a little bit calculating in that. I was like, wait a second, public radio doesn't have a history show. Like, right. They, they, we have all your major... And all history is every single thing that happened before now. The stories are already written. <laughs> exactly. The stories... If only they wrote themselves. But basically, every humanities category was ticked off except for history. And I was like, I'm going to fill this void. And so it started off a little bit like, let me attempt to do that. But also, like, I had just grown up, you know, in this sort of Italian household swapping, you know, stories of the old days. Um, you know, two Italian grandfathers, two Swedish grandmothers. And there was just like a whole lot of yakking about the past. And I, you know, sort of grew up with my understanding about the past, realizing that it was coming from stories. Like the only thing I knew about my grandfather was the stuff that was like embedded in these little anecdotes that would get sort of repeated ad nauseum. Right. And I, you know, as I got older, I kind of realized, you know what, the only thing I really know about the American Revolution is also kind of embedded in these anecdotes about various charges up various hills and stuff like that. And I thought like, what if you know, I kind of focused on telling history through those anecdotes because those things, you know, so often have power to speak beyond the story. It is the this, this sort of simple facts of the story it's trying to tell. But it seems to be the thing you're most drawn to is not the Paul Harvey thing. Sure, the style, but Paul Harvey would always tell us, now you know the rest of the story. And that man would always be Abraham Lincoln. Like half the time, that, yeah, was, exactly. the, that was the reveal. But you seem more drawn to... Here's a thing you never heard of, and once you hear about it, your mind is going to be blown. Yeah, like for me, it's not simply, hey, dudes, let's talk about something cool. I am on some level trying to blow minds, and I am on some level trying to break hearts or like deeply amuse people. And where that is, is that like, this is a little bit goofy, but on some level, like, well, the difference between an anecdote and a story often is found in meaning and moral, right? Yes. And so, like, the reason why I think some of the stories resonate and the reason why, like, the best history, history uh, you know, documentaries, like, historic home tours, whatever it might mean, the reason why they stay with you is because there is sort of more to the story than the sort of subject itself. You know, not only am I sort of out cruising for, like, hey, this is cool, I just learned this thing about this old magician and he had this wacky trick where... You know, he made 19 doves disappear in a time where there were no doves or whatever it might be. You know, I am mostly looking for meaning. What does this anecdote tell me about my life? What right. does it tell potentially tell listeners about theirs? And of course, how does the story of the past resonate in the present? And that's why I think a lot, a commonality of a lot of them, you, you're attracted to Barnum and hucksterism and sideshows. And so some that I could cite are when Barnum exhibited supposedly the, what, 161-year-old former slave right. and the Inuit who lived in the Natural History Museum and the St. Louis Olympics where they actually, as part of the games, had competition between different tribesmen. And I think what's going on there is all like, oh my God, how could this have happened? How long ago was this? Was this really America? I can't believe that. Uh, I'm always shocked by how um, that the distance that you experience in time when you're growing up, like anything that happened before your birth seems very, very far away. Yeah. You know, I'm graduating from high school in 1992 and Woodstock you know, which is, you know, 20 some odd years before might as well have been a thousand. But now I'm 20 years out from you know, more or less from my high school experience. 
And that must seem infinite to younger people. And that thing of like being reminded that, you know what, this country isn't that old. You know what, like, we are not that far away from slavery. We are not that far away from McCarthy. We are not that far away from disco, whatever it might be is always inherently valuable to me. I actually, as just kind of a citizen, I find that a little bit inspirational because it kind of ends up feeling like there is work out there that can be done because look how much is always changing. So often the thing that has changed so quickly is is simply, A, the way that we have treated people and the way that people have been treated. And they are uh, real people with real desires and, you know, real senses of pain and real senses of injustice and, you know, and, and real back problems and things that, that get literally lost because how can we engage Their shirts with that? were itchy and their run- noses may have been runny and... All those things, you know, and, and it is those details that make them feel, you know, more human to us. So it is those sort of details that I'm kind of trying to mine to make us connect with them. And I'm also perpetually interested in the way that one's historical moment dictates their life, dictates the opportunities, you know, opportunities that are in front of them. And it's not simply one was a slave and now one is free, or one could go to college and now one could not go to college. Like our historical moment dictates in so many ways, like, who we love, who we can love, not simply who we can marry, who we desire, how much sleep we might think we need to get, how much sleep is available to us, like things that are beyond sort of professional choices, beyond, you know, military conscription things. These are the the intimate details of our lives shift depending on uh, the sort of shifting sands of history. Let's geek out over music beds for a second, because sure. while I admire all the things you speak, I can identify with them. I say I couldn't do that as well, but I see where he's coming from. But to me, music beds are magic. I maybe sometimes let Andrea do them and she understands them, but I don't. <laughs> How do you know when you've matched the music to the subject correctly? You know, I do have a philosophy. And one is that, um, you know, I, I figured early on that a way to not make history boring in a very simple way was to play contemporary music. That there was something, you know, that the second you trap something in amber by having, you're talking about the 1920s and you slap some, some 1920s music, you know, behind it. It's not actually immersive. It's actually distancing. Like you yeah. don't feel like you've tr- been transported. You actually feel like oh, this isn't for me in a way. You're right about period music. I mean, if I time traveled back to the 20, I'm sure my number one thought would be, wait, where's the Charleston? I thought the Charleston (laughs) was under everything. How's there no Charleston here? (laughs) Exactly. You know, and the other thing that, you know, I'm trying to do often, and this is usually the thing that is the hardest to find, I think sometimes the stories move like movies because I'm using movie soundtracks. And it is only movie soundtrack stuff, uh, movie scoring that moves in those ways. But it is doesn't mean that, one, you know, it's like even a chase scene, you know, needs a very sort of specific scoring. So it can be very difficult to find things that need to move in the way that I do. And that's why, frankly, I go in and manipulate them so much. But like that is where the kind of like magic of this whole thing works. Nate DeMeo erects the memory palace on a regular basis in a podcast feed near you. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Mike. Imagine Andrea Salenzi. She's bright. She's the producer of The Gist. 
but there are things she just doesn't do. Things she can't be. She can't be the managing producer because that is the role taken by another gentleman. His name is Joel Meyer. Natalie dressed, well-mannered. Joel was said to have kind words or courteous gestures befitting a gentleman. This is in contrast to another character in this tight circle. His name is Andy Bowers, and Andy Bowers was the executive producer. He was the kind of executive producer, they said, who would tell you things like, sign up for the GIST's daily newsletter. You could play the GIST right off your computer. Do that by going to slate.com slash GIST email. The GIST. They said it would go in many directions. It would take you many places. But it always landed in the same place with Mike saying three words. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm Karina Kolodny. And I'm Noah Michelson. We're the co-hosts of the HuffPost to Love and Sex podcast. Each week, we start with a single question, and then we look to experts, real-life experiences, and listeners like you to find the answers. Questions like, how will artificial intelligence change the future of sex? Or, what is going to a sex party really like? June 4th will mark our inaugural penis episode, which will tell you literally everything you've wanted to know about man's best friend. So abandon your inhibitions and download and subscribe to the HuffPost Love and Sex podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.